bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our show. It's Friday, and we are at CPAC. So without further ado, we're going to go straight to our intrepid reporter and host, Paul Dragu, who is in CPAC, standing by with, with lots of uh, news and updates. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. Like you say, we're here at CPAC in Washington, D.C., and it just so happens that right now, Michael Lindell is being interviewed in the New American booth. Uh, about six feet away from me, our uh, other senior editor, Veronica Karolinko, is uh, talking to her, uh, talking to him. Uh, so that's it's, uh, it's all, a lot going on here, a lot of exciting, a lot of uh, shakers and movers, of course. It, it is CPAC. Um, I don't know if I told you yesterday, but the theme of CPAC, and I was quite taken with this, is CPAC, where globalism goes to die. I sat in on quite a few panels, and um, they were encouraging. They talked about the crazy trans movement. They talked about energy. They talked about um, uh, 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 young Republicans. They talked about uh, the, the movements in camp on campus, the destructive movements, uh, the anti-liberal movements on campus. So uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, a lot of the hub hub is upstairs on, on media row as well. And it's Friday. And so I think it looks like everyone's also getting ready for Trump and Millet. Javier Millet will be here. Trump, of course, will be here tomorrow. Security is tight. There is a lot of security, uh, a lot of visible security. And my understanding is there's also a lot of uh, secret service here, too. So uh, it's, it's, there's a lot going on, Steve, that's for sure. So where globalism goes to die, I mean, that's that's quite astonishing when you consider the pedigree of CPAC, which used to be kind of a, uh, you know, more of a neocon Buckleyite conservative type of event, at least if memory serves. I first started following CPAC back in the 90s, and that was very much the bent. Uh, people who were anti-globalists, who were not internationalists, probably were not were given the cold shoulder. How has that changed now? Do you see that? Would you say that most of the people you've seen are are share that perspective of being opposed to globalism? And if so, you know, I mean, how is that playing in Washington generally? Well, I've, I've talked to some of the vendors at the booths, and I've talked to a number of people, you know, just regular attendees. And as I've gotten into conversations about, you know, everyone's got an approach. Everyone has a, a, a filter through which they see how things are coming apart and whatnot. And whenever we get on the conversation of globalism, that there is an effort to submerge the United States into this new world order that destroys our sovereignty. And that's part of the madness or the bulk of the madness that we're seeing it's more like um the response is, is is kind of like yes yes of course that's that's the case i don't i don't think i've run into one single person who's like really it seems like that is uh, a foregone conclusion here among everyone i've spoken to obviously i haven't spoken to everyone and i'm sure uh that isn't necessarily the case with everyone but that does seem to be the common, uh, very common, a common belief. And of course, like I said, it's the theme of CPAC. So I was very taken, uh, I was very surprised to see that and uh, wonderfully surprised, I would say. Well, do you, do you, I mean, how, of course, we've been talking about this for decades, you know, with, with, with campaigns like Get Us Out of the UN and things of that nature. How likely is this going to be to be to transmute into some sort of concerted action on these fronts? Because it's one thing to to mouth a slogan and say, you know, you know, we are anti-globalist. But it's another to actually launch a, some sort of a, a, an integrated campaign 
to borrow a term the, the globalists love, integration, right? Uh, to, 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 to actually get us out of these noxious organizations that are promoting globalism. Have you seen any sentiment in that direction concretely? You know, get us out of the World Trade Organization, get us out of the UN, get us out of the, the WHO or, or things of that nature. Uh, I haven't exact. I haven't seen anything that pronounced. Um, I haven't had a chance to sit in on all the panels, and so I can't say that that hasn't been verbalized or, or that that's not a goal. Uh, but I haven't necessarily seen that. When it comes to, to I suppose, the answers or whatnot, it doesn't seem like there's a uh, there's a lot of movements and, and company or organizations pushing for that exactly. Uh, there is a lot of uh, social. Type organizations. I mean, I'm, we're, we're across from a banner that says, you know, stop nuking the nuclear family. Uh, I spoke to other, you um, say, young Republicans, and uh, yesterday, and that, that they seem to uh, get it as well. But as far as what happens, how do we stop? How do we kill globalism? I haven't seen anything. But again, uh, I've been roving around a lot, and so we're, I'm going to sit in on some more panels this afternoon, and of course tomorrow. And again, remember that the, the big headliners are Trump and Millet. Uh, the uh, you know the, these these are the main anti-globalism guys as, as far as the movement goes. So um, I, I don't know as far as if they have answers. I have talked to quite a few folks. I've shared with them the Freedom Index score and whatnot, and the, everyone is very receptive to the idea. But it seems to me, at, at least on my part, what I've seen that there isn't necessarily a lot of organizations pushing. Uh, solutions. Now, I also want to mention that the big, as far as Media Row goes, Steve Bannon's outfit, The War Room, they have a big, uh, uh, a, a big platform there, and everyone gathers around. And so he kind of rails against this as well. So it seems like, based on where I stand, they're in those uh, those pre preliminary phases where they realize globalism is a problem. So maybe we're at the rhetoric stage. And so hopefully we can move into the action phase of, okay, now we've realized that globalism is a danger. That's what's threatening us. But fortunately, the, the John Birch Society is here. The New American is here. And um, as far as I can tell, not, not to pat ourselves on the back, but we may be the, the most pronounced organization as far as a solution goes. And, and we have, we've brought lots of materials. We've, we've brought magazines and pamphlets and things like that explaining what the, the steps are. Now, we also have... Uh, we have a regional coordinator from John Birch Society. We have our communications director here, Lizzie Cohen, and they're talking to people. And, and that's why we're here, actually. It seems like we're, uh, we're just at the right time because they get it. They understand what the problem is. And fortunately, we, we're here and we say, OK, you get what the problem is. Here's what the solution is. And that is why we came here. Uh, so we came in at a time where it seems that uh, conservatism in America is ripe to tackle globalism. So, okay, so, so just to get into specifics of what we've been doing, so who, what, what are some of the names that we've, you mentioned, of course, Mike Lindell being interviewed as we speak, or I, I don't know if they're finished by now, but what other, what other people have, have, have stopped by, have we been able to, to, to interview that we'll be able to share with our, with our viewers and our, and our listeners? Well, as, as, as far as uh, I know, we've been interviewed lots of uh, former Trump officials, uh, Trump administration officials. Uh, uh, this, they discussed uh, the border. Uh, they discussed uh, energy policies. I think we're looking to interview uh, quite a few others. Uh, so there's the conversations here are all the conversations that we have. The attack on energy, the attack on, on uh, the family, 
uh, the attack on the border. I'm going to interview uh, after this uh, Kim Yader, who was one of the leaders of the Take Our Southern Border convoy back. Uh, so there's there's quite a bit. They Everyone understands and they kind of all have the same um, agendas uh, that that are necessary uh, as, as far as that goes. Well, that's good to hear. So, so I, I believe I think we're going to be having the next segment. We're going to have an interview with with uh, Tom Holman, who used to be the uh, the acting director of INS, and we have we've have others queued up. So this this is this is really exciting. One thing that that strikes me, Paul, is that you know in years past there was always a generous compliment of lawmakers present at CPAC, giving speeches, granting interviews, this sort of thing. Do you get the feeling that that's still the case? That actual you know active policymakers are in attendance, or is this mostly a grassroots event this year? Oh, oh there's quite a few. I mean, Byron Donaldson was, was coming through yesterday. You can tell who, uh, who the VIPs and the lawmakers are because there's usually an entourage, and then there's usually like this board of reporters. Uh, Mark Green uh, was, was here. He was mobbed by, by reporters. Uh, who, who was, uh, there was, there's uh, legislators, state legislators that are here. I don't I don't know all their names, but they stopped by. So there is. There, we have state and, and some quite a few federal legislators here speaking out and uh, making the rounds. It's kind of hard for them to get around because everywhere they go, they kind of mobbed and whatnot. But there's cer- there's certainly uh, there's certainly quite a few quite a number of them here. Wow, that sounds exciting. Well, Paul, we'd like to ask you to stick around for just a little bit at the beginning of our next segment um, to 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 share a little bit more with us. We're uh, we're really excited that you're there, and uh, we got our crew there for a second year in a row, really getting this coverage of this this major, you know, pivotal event. And uh, so, stand by. Thanks, Paul. Well, coming up next, we'll have a little bit more from the floor of CPAC with Paul Dragu, and also uh, an interview with uh, with Tom Holman, as mentioned, and more after that. Hey, America, how tired are you of mainstream corporate media's biased narratives and manipulated news? Their dishonesty and attempts to influence this generation have been exposed, put on display for anyone who's even half paying attention. But the New American Magazine has been an honest source of news and commentary for over 50 years. This is your opportunity to receive the stalwart of principled journalism at a deep discount. Picture a beautifully published magazine arriving at your doorstep twice a month, packed with insightful stories written with integrity. It's also available digitally on the New American's mobile app. Get up to speed with intelligent coverage from a freedom perspective. Right now, for a limited time, The New American is available to radio listeners at a 25% discount on a new subscription. Visit thenewamerican.com slash radio25 and receive 25% off. Subscribe today at thenewamerican.com slash radio25. The New American has just released our latest bookazine, a collection of articles on self-reliance. It's called Self-Reliance, Foundation of Freedom. Without individual responsibility and without the ability to take care of ourselves without government help, we cannot be free. In this Polished Collector's Edition, we have articles on a number of important topics, including the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst-case scenario, firearm self-reliance, building a wood shack, and the importance of community, among many other topics. Now, the authors of the articles are experts in their fields. We encourage you to get a copy. You can order your copy at thenewamerican.com forward slash shop, or you can call our office at 800-727-8783. However you do it, make sure you get your copy of Self-Reliance, The Foundation of Freedom. 
Welcome back, everybody. Well, we just have a, another couple minutes with Paul Dragu before he has to go off and conduct an interview in his own account. Um, and then after that, we'll be looking at uh, an, an interview we, we had yesterday with, with Tom Holman, the former acting director of ICE. Hey, Paul. Welcome back. Hey. So you were telling me about another individual who was present that, that you neglected to mention earlier. Who else was there? Yes, yes. Well, Senator Tommy Tuberville of oh. Alabama, he was one of the speakers there, too. Uh, and, and like I said, those are just the ones I've seen. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure there, I think there's quite a few others. And like I said, there's quite a few uh, state legislators. Oh, that's great. Okay, well, it's, so it sounds like, you know, it's, it's and you indicated also now you had originally planned to leave at the end of today, but you decided to stay to catch uh, to catch the craziness tomorrow because we have a doubleheader. Well, actually, I understand Bukele, the president of El Salvador, is also going to be there. So I don't know if you've heard about that, but that was my understanding. But you indicated specifically <clears throat> you're hoping to see uh, President Javier Millet of Argentina and, uh, of course, Donald Trump, former president and hopefully future president of the United States, who will be, I guess, the final speaker at tomorrow's event. So what are your plans then looking forward? Well, I, I'm going to be here and I'm, I'm going to be reporting on, on the mayhem. Of course, I'd, I'll be writing a, a story for, for the print issue of, of the New American. So uh, I'm, I'm here to do my duty as a reporter, Steve. And so I can't imagine leaving before the headliners and people like Millet and Trump uh, leave. So that's it's going to be they're expecting, like I mentioned in the previous segment, expecting uh, they're preparing for the mayhem that it's going to be security is tight. And uh, people are, are, are excited to see those two. That's for sure. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for spending time, Paul. We won't detain you any longer. Have a great day. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Steve. Okay, coming right up, our interview with uh, Tom Holman. Hi, everyone. This is Veronica Kirilenko of the New American Magazine. We're at CPAC in Washington, D.C., and next to me I have Tom Homan, the former acting director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Mr. Homan, so great to see you. What's your professional assessment of the situation on America's southern border? It's a nightmare. We went from the most secure border in my lifetime under President Trump to historically immigration. We went from one extreme to the other. And the, and the saddest thing is it was done on purpose. There wasn't, it's not mismanagement, it's not incompetence. They ran on open borders and that's what we have. They destroyed the most secure border in our nation's history on purpose. And I wake up every day upset about what they did because people are dying at record numbers. Criminal cartels are making billions of dollars. This is not good for America. It's a national security threat. And uh, again, in three years this administration been in power, they haven't done one thing not one thing to slow the flow. What's the purpose of destroying the most secure, well, one of the most secure borders in the world, sounds like? I, I think they perceive a future political benefit, right? They think these millions of people will be future Democratic voters, but it doesn't even have to get that far. Because uh, Biden also overturned overturn the Trump census rule, which means millions of illegal aliens in sanctuary cities will be counted in the next census, which is going to matter when they when they reproportionate seats in the house that more means more seats in the house for the dems that means political power and that's what that has to be the reason they did it because there's no other reason to unsecure border there's no downside on a secure border there's no downside unless people dying no downside unless drugs get in the country no downside unless sex less sex trafficking on women and children no downside unless 
uh, terrorist threats coming across the border. There's no downside to secure border. So the only reason, only reason they did it because they perceive a future political benefit. Let's talk about your immediate wheelhouse. How would you assess the work of ICE during the Biden administration? ICE is, you know, ICE is pretty, their mission has been abolished. You know, people are screaming, abolish ICE, abolish ICE. And I said from day one, they'll never abolish a federal agency, but they will abolish the mission. And they'll starve them of money, operating money. And that's what they've done. ICE agents are, the morale's at an all-time low, same with the Border Patrol. Uh, these men and women uh, took an oath to enforce immigration law. They're not being allowed to do so. So on, under the next administration, which I think is going to be President Trump, they're going to be allowed to do their job again and, and secure this nation and protect Americans. What are the biggest challenges that ICE agents and other law enforcement agents are facing right now to actually do their job and deport illegals? Well, they can't deport illegals. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas has told ICE that being in the country illegally on its own without a serious criminal conviction isn't enough to arrest them. So they're not enforcing immigration law. They can't arrest them for simply being here illegally, which they should. That's the oath they took. And another big issue is these sanctuary cities. Even the criminals, even the secretary says they got to be convicted of a serious crime before you target them. Okay, but we can't target them because sanctuary cities won't call ICE when they're in their jails. The sanctuary cities, police departments aren't allowed to work with ICE. ICE doesn't allow to step foot in their jail to get these bad criminals. So it really makes no sense. So not only is ICE agent not allowed to do their job, but when they try in sanctuary cities, it's impossible. So again, under next administration, we'll get them back to their job. Yes, and talking about the next administration, you announced some comprehensive deportation plan that will be put in place if Trump is elected this year. Would you please uh, talk about this plan? We're going to let ICE do their job and deport people that have been ordered deported. And this administration says being in the country illegally is not enough to be arrested. Well, guess what? It will be under the Trump administration. So if you're in the country legally, you better be looking over your shoulder because entering this country legally is wrong. It's a crime. When you get ordered removed, you don't leave. That's wrong. So look, it's the same reason I don't go 100 miles an hour down the freeway. I don't want to get a ticket. Same reason I don't lie in my taxes. I don't want to get charged with tax fraud. It's not okay to enter this country legally. So you shouldn't feel comfortable. People say, well, you kind of threaten. You shouldn't look over your shoulder. Well, right. That's where it's supposed to be. If you're in the country legally, you shouldn't be comfortable. You broke our laws. You're in the country legally and, and you're going to be held accountable. So how many people do you think need to be actually expelled from the country if the law is upheld? Well, it's millions. It's millions. And it's, you're not going to be able to do it overnight. It depends how many resources you have, how many officers you have. It depends how many detention facilities you have. It depends on how many deportation flights you got. There's so much you have to consider before you can put a number on it. But it's going to be one hell of a job. It certainly will. So, but immigration is such a hot topic for American voters. How do you think that all the uh, this broken immigration system will backfire on Joe Biden this November? It already has, and that's why Joe Biden is finally talking about doing something about the border. Why, after three years, are you finally talking about it? Because the election's coming up. That's the only reason he's doing that. And if he ever was to win re-election. Whatever he's doing now, he'll completely turn it off day one of his next presidency because they want open borders. So I don't trust it. I've worked for six presidents. I've worked for many administrations. I've seen policies come and go. This is nothing but a political ploy. He doesn't want to secure the border. He's had three years to do it and refused to do it. He's only talking about it now because of the election. Sir, what's your message to American voters this year? Border security matters. It's just not about illegal immigration. Like I said a minute ago, 
It's about national security. It's about terrorism. It's about gangs. It's about sex trafficking with young children. It's about fentanyl that killed over 100,000 Americans. It's about the no inspected terrorists that have been arrested trying to come in the border. This is a national security failure of the biggest proportion. This is the biggest national security failure since 9-11. we got to fix it so we get to the voting booth in November. Vote for border security because this country is at risk. Sir, uh, I would like to thank you so much for your time today. What's the best way to follow you and your work? You can go to border911.com. That's the website. It's a, it's a 501c3c4. Uh, go to that website. You learn an awful lot about what's going on. And uh, I got the best border team in the world. And you're going to see a lot of videos, a lot of data. And we're going to re go to that website and you'll be educated on what really is going on at the border. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Sophia paused before the door. It read, Department of Biodigital Convergence. Just inside was a new world, a better world, the one of everlasting life, of no pain, of no loss, of no problem. She entered the chamber and her surroundings changed. She saw around her an infinite field of waving golden grain surmounted by cloudless blue sky. The AI voice whispered gently in her mind, welcome to the singularity. She couldn't see it and couldn't feel it, but her body had almost instantly been covered by a swarm of tiny gray multi-legged bots that melted through her clothes and into her skin. Not perceiving the nightmare, her eyes had already been consumed and the rest of her body was dissolving as the bots digested her flesh. She felt only a warmth suffusing her being. Drowsy, she drifted to sleep and her last thought was one of panic. Would she ever wake? Could a nightmare vision like this be an outcome of the much-hyped transhumanist technological singularity? Enter the world of the future as illuminated by the experience of the past in Endgame. The new book by Dennis Barrett, the publisher of The New American Magazine, and find out how the disastrous COVID pandemic response fits with the technocratic elite's thirst to create a transhumanist utopia. Get Endgame from shopjbs.org with free shipping with code ENDSHIP, E-N-D-S-H-I-P. Or get Endgame and the Great Reset Collector's issue of The New American Magazine and get free shipping plus an additional 20% off both with code N20, E-N-D-2-0. Welcome back. Coming up next, an interview with Carla Sands, former Trump economic advisor and also former U.S. ambassador to Denmark. Hi, everyone. This is Veronica Kirilenko of The New American Magazine. We're at CPAC in Washington, D.C., and next to me is Ambassador Carla Sands of the America First Policy Institute. Carla, you have, uh, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I appreciate your time. You have an expertise in energy and environment, and I want to ask you this. On his first day in office, Joe Biden rejoins uh, Paris Climate Agreement, and then he set the goal of net zero economy by 2050. What should America know about this agenda and uh, what, it mean, what, what is its implementation means in practical terms for everyday Americans? Well, it's a great question, Veronica. And I don't think Americans who are concerned about the environment, right? I mean, we want clean water, clean air, clean land. Uh, and we want to pass that down for generations, but we're actually doing that now with American natural gas and how highly regulated our energy industry is. The whole net zero agenda is, it's anti-human, it's anti-human flourishing, it's deindustrialization, and if they achieve it, billions of people will die. It's literally anti-human. Would you elaborate on that? Sure, I would. So the people that 
tout uh, net zero and the Green New Deal, Green New Scam, President Trump calls it, those people actually oppose nuclear energy. And if you oppose nuclear energy, and they, you, they often oppose hydropower, both are clean, sustainable. Nuclear energy is the most clean, sustainable green energy that you can have. Hydropower, super clean and uh, sustainable. And if you oppose energy that you can rely on, that's cheap and good, then you know that it is an anti-human deindustrialization agenda. And you can see it already happening in Europe the cost of energy in Germany and Denmark is the highest in Europe, extremely high, and they are pushing forward faster than we are to this so-called net zero, which is a scam. It's an anti-human agenda. I would say it's an anti-Christ agenda, if you will, because we know that we're supposed to make the, the world, the earth great, protect it, but also benefit human beings and benefit their lives and our beautiful lives the the comforts that we all have where we can flip a switch and have a light go on where we have heat in the winter and cooling often in the summer those are all benefits of reliable fossil fuels or if you want to call them hydrocarbon energy we are never going to run out of that in the United States. We are awash in energy under the ground in the United States. We are richer than Russia and Saudi Arabia combined, I believe. Like, we, we will never run out. And so um, if we harvest those cleanly here in the United States and we have all kinds of great baseload energy, um, we can also export it to our friends and allies like in Europe so that they don't have to rely on energy from places like Russia and Iran. So I think, and I just wrote an op-ed in the Washington Times a few days ago about the Biden administration's attempt to uh, stop us exporting natural gas to Europe when they desperately need it and when literally our natural gas kept the lights on last year in Germany. It's interesting, uh, you know, the central topic of the climate change narrative is how awful carbon dioxide is. They say it's literally killing people everywhere. It's causing pandemics. It's causing all these kind of awful things, poverty, gender inequality, and you name it. What's your take on this vilification of this gas? Well, first of all, as you're speaking to me, you, you breathe out carbon dioxide largely in your breath. We humans create carbon dioxide, and if you want to grow more plants in a greenhouse, you pump carbon dioxide in, and you get more flowering and, and more production from the fruit. So carbon dioxide is part of nature. We don't want to take away carbon dioxide. If we do that, we actually can get so low that life dies on the planet. So um, it's not the boogeyman that the left has made it out to be. If you look at the purveyors of this sort of green porn, people like Al Gore and, and uh, John Kerry. These are people that are, 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 they're so false. They're like false prophets. Everything that they've ever predicted has not happened, for instance. So they've made a kind of grift on this green scam. And then we have the Congress who has passed in the United States more than a trillion dollars toward this scam. And now they've put John Podesta as the guy, well, I know he has about $400 billion to dole out as a kind of Solyndra 2.000 uh, to friends and you know people who have relationships with the left and with the Biden administration, rather than 
keeping the government's hands off of energy and letting the market, the free market decide what do people want rather than government should never be putting in electric uh, charging stations. Elon Musk said that. Government has no business doing that. Instead, just like gas stations are built where there's business, that's how it should be for electric charging stations. And people should have the right to choose, for instance, what kind of car they want to drive. The Biden administration and Congress, as you said, in its Inflation Reduction Act provided for so many green subsidies into all these green sectors that they say are nice and great and sustainable, wind, solar and nitrogen, and uh, there are tax deductions, whatnot. Uh, what's your take on this approach? So I don't believe that government should be picking winners and losers. I think that consumers should decide what they want to buy and the market will decide. For instance, there's an electric vehicle rebate for everyone that buys an electric vehicle. Most of those rebates go to rich people. Depending on where they live, it's like $6,500, $7,500 of that tax uh, of the, the car purchase price comes right back to them instantly. Well, you know who's paying for that are working people who are paying their taxes. That's a gift to the rich from the working people. It's not right. So under the Trump administration, they were working to end that because it's not fair. It's kind of like paying off someone's student loan when you didn't go to college, but you have to pay for it as a working person. We don't want to take from the working families and give to the rich. That's the wrong thing to do. And it's, I think, un-American. How do you think net zero agenda affects America's standing in the world and its energy independence? Right. So under President Trump, we were, for the first time in about 50 years, energy independent. And we were on our way to energy dominance. And what it has done, it's allowed us to uh, power the rest of the world. They don't want Russian gas. They should never have been doing that pipeline, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. You know, that was a scam too. That was so a business concept that Germany did with Russia. And I understand business, but they knew, the investors knew that that pipeline wasn't bringing more gas into Europe. It was going to bypass Ukraine and they, Russia was going to stop paying the transit fees to Ukraine that Ukraine needs that money uh, for their government. And so it was actually to weaken Ukraine. Russia was weakening Ukraine. Germany knew to make it easier to take over Ukraine in a, before they did the invasion. So um, the, not the invasion of 2014, but the invasion of uh, 2022. So what we want to, are our allies to have energy security like we do. We want our friends to prosper. For instance, when Liz Truss briefly was prime minister in the UK, she actually said, look, we have a lot of gas here in the UK. Let's frack. What a concept. You use your own clean energy rather than bringing it from an adversary or from the Middle East. And, uh, and she was shut down. But I would love to see a government come into the UK that benefits the people of the UK. People f died in London last winter because of the, the energy costs, but it's self-inflicted. It's as if the West hates itself, wants to die, and has decided to commit suicide by stopping energy and other perverse, uh, other perverse um, policies. It's hard to believe that all these perverse policies are happening just a result of incompetence. What's your take on this? No, I agree with you. I think that it's a, a, a top-down thing cooked up by the hard left, working in conjunction with the UN. Um, <clears throat> we can see it happened even under COVID, right, where you saw these restrictions. People couldn't live normal lives. Ridiculous. It was as if the whole world became 
communist China controlled by a, a communist party. And so what we want in the West, certainly we want to share that with the rest of the world, is freedom is the right to say what you want, which I worry the English-speaking countries are losing their freedom of speech. I want them to go to AmericaFirstWorks.com, AmericaFirstWorks.com. Coming up next, more coverage from CPAC. Stay with us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence proclaims God-given rights, and we intend to protect them. Working with people like you for over 50 years, preserving freedom and building a better tomorrow, safeguarding the Constitution by limiting government power. We are restoring liberties, educating voters, and leading the freedom movement. Join with us. United, we will defend our rights. We are all Americans. We are the John Birch Society. Welcome back. Yesterday, Paul Dragu interviewed some college students from Georgia who told him all about their journey into the freedom movement. So let's watch and listen. Hey everyone, Paul Dragu here reporting for The New American at CPAC in Washington, D.C. And I have with me some of the youngest attendees at CPAC. So guys, go ahead and introduce yourselves and then tell us uh, what brought you here. Hi, I'm Evan. I'm 18. I'm at University of Georgia. I believe in like a lot of liberty, libertarian stuff, but I do think Donald Trump is our best option in 2024. I had to turn out for him, you know? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, my name is Michael Lim, also from the University of Georgia. And uh, I believe that you know, conservative politics really need to make a return to the Republican Party. And so that's why I'm here. And obviously I'm here to support President Trump. So so you guys are actually part of a bigger group. I ran into you guys yesterday. So how did you arrange this uh, to come over here? And is this your first CPAC? Well, we have a bunch of people from our school go. We have like three people. And this is my first CPAC. I think it's all of our first CPAC, right? Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we're with this student organization on campus called the Conservative Student Union, uh, which actually branched off from Turning Point. And so this was our inaugural event. We decided to go to uh, CPAC to branch out, network, and get some good speakers and, you know, just meet a lot of good people at the, in the conservative movement. And so, you know, I've been having a good time. And as the treasurer, you know, it was a lot to organize, but, like, it was so worth it to see all the people out here at CPAC. So. Yeah. So I'd like to ask you guys, how did you guys get to become conservative or constitutional or not? I mean, you're in a, in a university environment. I, may, I take it you're somewhat in the minority. But how did you get to have the principles and values that you have now when so many young people are quite the contrary? Well, I think modern people in Gen Z just don't understand the values of Jesus. And there's too much atheism in society because Religion is really what determines our values, and too many people don't have a religion and lean on politics and all of these political games in Washington to determine what they believe in. There's a spiritualization of politics that's really dangerous. So, ground zero for me in determining values is Jesus, but also understanding just what we are as a society in America. The common denominator in our society is freedom. I've been really motivated to fight that. Um, that's why I'm here. So, so this this. The Jesus factor is what brought you. And did you grow up in a in a Jesus environment, in a Christian environment? 
I did not. I grew up in upstate New York. So, I mean, there is enough Christianity there, but it's still New York, it's still the North. Being able to go to college in the South, it's really enlightening to see a lot of God-fearing people, people who actually respect Christianity and respect Jesus Christ. So, Michael, how did you come to embrace conservative values? Well, I'll have to agree with Evan. Obviously, the foundation was Jesus Christ, but I'll, I'll start when I was in middle school. We all went to the state capitol and we wrote a bill uh, kind of just, you know, talking about one topic and we would write the bill as if we were legislators. And so that really got my gears thinking about like politics and like what conservatism meant to me, what liberalism was. And, you know, obviously, you know, I was young, so I started watching the Ben Shapiro videos, the Steven Crowder videos, like we were all there at one point. And after that, you know, that's like the dessert kind of portion, you get a little sick of it. So I started reading a bit, you know, reading history, you know, reading the Bible was a big part. Now I'm converting to Catholicism and I'm really making, um, morality and my faith a big big factor into what I do in politics so on campus do you guys make it an intentional mission to help others understand conservative values and um, do you how does that go when you engage in a conversation with someone is there um, are they more receptive to certain uh, line of questioning or reasoning than others uh, I guess the question is how do, what's your most effective way of bringing others to embrace conservative values? Well, I mean, for all the conservative organizations on campus, I think we certainly are less afraid to go out and talk to average people. We host tabling sessions right in the middle of campus, right during the peak time of the day when people show up, people will answer questions. Sure, you'll find people that don't want to answer things or people who might have issues, but they're generally actually pretty good with going away. The people who want to talk to you about stuff are the people who actually bring constructive thought. And whether it be constructive criticism or support for whatever your value is, I think it's really important that we're even there because there are a lot of liberal groups and then even you could say our college Republicans don't go out and table and talk enough as they should. And there are very few important things fighting for in life, but you have to fight for your values, number one. So just going out there and having conversations with people, that's all it is. Do you, do you enjoy doing that, engaging in conversation? And uh, what's most rewarding about that, Michael? Well, I think a big part of it is when you're out there and you're speaking to people, you know, you're really just trying to read their hearts. You know, like when sometimes I'll have like a clipboard instead of just tabling, I'll have, it'll be like a single issue question. You know, what are your thoughts on concealed carry? What are your thoughts on abortion? And it's sort of in the format of like a like a, a petition, just to get people to like sign the paper. But you know, it's really asking people, and it starts with one question: like, what are your thoughts on this issue? It, it really gets people thinking about political issues. And then, when there's unity, you know, there's common ground, and that's where you start building communities. That's where you start, um, you know, finding people that are similar, you know, have similar political ideas as you. And so, that's kind of like, I think the most fun part about it. But you know. You look at the the landscape, and as we said, you've already we're operating under the assumption that young people tend to lean left. Is that a fair assumption, or is it not as fair as us older folks and, and the general population assume? Are we disregarding young people too quickly as leftists? Oh, I think the assumption is totally fair because it's true, and you know what. We'll take the brunt of all the criticism for our generation, but that's why people like us are even more motivated to turn things around. That doesn't scare you? It doesn't scare me at all. If you have values and you have conviction, then all the rest is secondary, you know? Yeah. How do, how do, how do you deal with being in the minority as far as, you know, a, a, a political minority? 
You know, a big part of it is understanding that it's not personal. You know, a lot of these people are just raised in environments where the idea is just liberalism. You know, they find it easy to be liberal because it enables people to be sinful and enables people to do a lot of what they want to do without facing their consequences. And so uh, a big motivating factor for me to be a conservative and to, you know, kind of interact with, you know, left-leaning, you know, Gen Z, it's, it's a lot of like, you know, coming back to faith, just having a personal discussion. It's like, you know, that's kind of what I do, so. Well, I mean, that's, it's really good to, to see that. What would you guys say to, um, to the rest of the world as far as how can the rest of us help to bring more young people in the fold to red pill them, to obviously make them into uh, informed voters? Well, I think the rest of the world just needs to fight for the same values America does. I mean, going all the way back to the city on a hill that we had in New England, before we were even America, America has to be, must be, and will be the shining beacon of freedom for the world. So it all starts here. I mean, I would love to see the rest of the world come and stand up for values like freedom and Christianity as much as America has in history. And we've got some great international leaders here. We have Liz Truss, we have Bukele, we have Javier Millet from Argentina. But you can't trust the greater world because there will always be more liberal. There will always be not America. There's a reason we broke off from Europe all those years ago. So we have to fix America first, and it starts at events like these, in my opinion. What was the question again? Sorry. How can the rest of uh, conservative America help bring more young people into the fold? Mm. You know, I think young people really want purpose in this country. You know, a lot of times, like, when I look at the people on my college campus, you know, it's a lot of empty life. Like, they live for the parties, they live for this idea of a peak, you know, and if you really live for the peak, then, you know, after 35, you should really just go and die, because, like, you're, you're just going to go downhill. But people don't do that, and that's not how life works, you know. Uh, the, the philosophy behind conservatism is it's not just about, you know, pleasure, it's not just about self-serving, it's also about the community, it's about, you know, morals that exist outside the self. And so, because those things are inevitable, I think young people will turn, because of how, how dark the world is getting, young people will turn to conservatism, and I'm going to be here to make that change happen, so. Well, they say that the light shines brightest when, it, when it's darkest. Is it a, a fair assessment that nihilism is more prevalent than it's probably ever been uh you know i'm years older than you guys but it seems like from where i'm standing that is the case because there's a lot of craziness i mean for instance we didn't have to deal with the trans madness and that's just on top of so many other things well that's all for this week thank you for tuning into the new american daily and we will continue to upload more uh coverage of cpac at the newamerican.com which you can we look at online and also Next week on Monday, we will also we will have more material from CPAC. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you on Monday.